Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. And this week we are talking to Congresswoman Liz Cheney, the former number three in the Republican caucus, as the vote is occurring to pick her replacement. Let's dive in. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us. And in person, this is our first in-person interview in so, so long. What a treat. Uh, Did you vote this morning? And who'd you vote for? I did not vote this morning. Um, And I do not know yet what the results are, but but we will see. Elise Stefanik was elected as the number three by a pretty overwhelming vote. Over 130 members voted for her, you know, 30 to 40 voted for Chip Roy. Given that, what do you think the message for Republicans should be heading into the 2022 election? Well, look, I, I have always, uh, over the course of the last several months, been very clear about, uh, I think this is a much bigger set of issues than about who's who's in leadership in, among the House Republicans. Uh, and I think that for us, going into 22 and into 24, uh, the election has got to be about uh, truth. It's got to be about building a party that brings back the voters that we lost in 2020, uh, that, that we aren't going to be able to convince people to come back to us, to support us, uh, to, to help us to be able to convey the policies that we know are right for the country if we continue to be drugged backwards, uh, continue to be um, complicit in uh, the lies the former president is telling about, uh, about the election and about our our process as a whole. So you think that that should be part of the conversation on the campaign trail, not Joe Biden's policies, not uh, sort of drawing that distinction with the other party, but actually sort of having this internal family conversation, uh, as serious as it is, with voters? Well, I would I would put it differently. I would say um, we have to defeat the really dangerous Biden policies. They're really bad for the country. They're certainly bad for Wyoming. Doing that requires that we can we can build a coalition that prevails and we can't build that coalition if we are a party based on lies, if if we are a party that is walked away from the rule of law, walked away from the Constitution. So I think actually having this discussion now isn't a choice. We have to have it because uh, there are so many people in our party, uh, in, including in our House Republican leadership, who are embracing the lies Uh, And and if you look at this from a political perspective, you know, 18 months before an election is probably a good time to have this discussion, a good time to to be clear about what the party stands for uh, so that we are going in as as strong as we can to the midterm elections and into 2024. From an electoral politics standpoint, I agree that the Republican Party lost some voters in 2020 um, that they used to have as part of their coalition, particularly white college-educated voters uh, ticked down a little, but non-college-educated white voters ticked up. In the coalition that you're talking about, aren't you also going to lose some voters? You know, we shouldn't. I mean, the the, the idea that we're going to lose voters because we're telling the truth, I think, does a disservice to our voters. I think people have been mis- misled. People have been betrayed. People who voted for President Trump. People who... Um, you know, believe what he's saying. And I think that makes it even more important for those of us who uh, know it's not true and who know how dangerous it is to speak out against it. Uh, and it's, 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 it's necessary for us to do it. I think that 
as a party, we have to be very clear. We stand for the policies, you know, the policies for the most part, not all of them, but limited taxes or limited government and low taxes, um, resources for the Department of Defense, a strong national defense. Uh, those are policies we believe in. And, and those are policies that are much better for the country than the Democrats' policies. But to defeat the Democrats, we have to have enough voters to do that. And you can't do that. It's, it's a fundamental, um, it's toxic to the party. And I, I would say also to the country uh, for us to sort of say, well, you know what? The former president is lying and the former president provoked an attack on the Capitol, but we're just going to ignore that. And we're going to sort of continue to coddle him and continue to be complicit in those lies. You know, it's fundamentally dishonest and, and I think um, uh, dangerous for the country. So setting aside Republican leadership for a second, think about uh, one of your Republican colleagues who's running in a swing district. Can't you understand why that person would say, I don't want to be talking about 2020. I don't want to be talking about Donald Trump. I don't want to be facing this. I need to make a case that Joe Biden's policies are bad, that my specific Democratic opponent, whoever he or she may be, has to be the focus of my attention. And if we've got Liz Cheney in leadership or, you know, elsewhere making these big arguments, focusing on Donald Trump, that makes it less likely that I'm going to win. Well, I think each uh, individual member's got to decide what's right for their their district. Uh, I think that that these things aren't mutually exclusive. And and again, I think that, you know, fundamentally, uh, you either accept that this is dangerous or you ignore that it's dangerous. And and I think some people could say, you know what, we just don't think it's that dangerous. Certainly, there are Republican leaders who've taken the position, let's just ignore him. Uh, let's hope for the best. He's going to fade away. And and I think that if if ignoring the former president was an option that really would lead to him fading away, then you would have many more of us doing that if we thought that what he was doing wasn't dangerous. Yeah, I mean, people were saying that in 2015, dangerous. too, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, hoping for the best when you have a former president um, who is basically telling the American people that our electoral system cannot be counted on to convey their will, um, that our electoral process is so broken um, that, you know, basically the same thing that the, the Chinese Communist Party says about us, he's saying about us. Uh, I, I think that is, that's something we must stand up against. How many of your colleagues in the House, I mean, you worked with them on, on messaging, you spent a lot of time with them after the election. Um, how many of your colleagues in the House Republican conference really believe that the election was stolen in the way that Donald Trump describes it? Meaning nefarious vote flipping, should have won Michigan, should have won Arizona, should have won Georgia. How many would you say really believe that? I think it's it's a very, very small number who really believe it. Um, I think, you know, clearly there's a larger number who um, are willing to sort of go along with it. Uh, I think that, you know, you've, you've seen that, including from uh, Elise Stefanik, uh, the, the willingness to continue to make claims that are just not true. And, um, and then I think you have, you know, a large number of members of the conference who really just want to, to focus on Biden, which I completely agree with, um, and, and hope that this will go away. But, but you've got another fundamental problem, which is um, our leadership, Kevin McCarthy, uh, you know, going to Mar-a-Lago, rehabilitating uh, the former president, um, the extent to which the NRCC, you know, is basically sending out loyalty oaths around the former president, um, 
it, the 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 rehabilitation of him and uh, the embrace of him and talk about him as the leader of our party um, makes this a different kind of a choice. This isn't sort of, you know, be silent and he'll go away uh, or stand up against him. This is, you've got to embrace him. And, and I, you know, fundamentally for me, at the end of the day, if being in house leadership on the Republican side requires the embrace of that lie, that's simply not something I'm willing to participate in. So Dave Wasserman of uh, the Cook Political Report and NBC News has reported a, a couple different times that Kevin McCarthy told him, look, I know Trump lost. Like, we, we know that Trump lost. And, and in fact, at one point predicted that he, McCarthy and Mitch McConnell would have to put out a statement because Donald Trump wouldn't accept the fact that he lost. In your conversations with Kevin McCarthy after the election, what did he say to you? Does, does he know that Trump lost? He knows Trump lost, yeah. And, and um, I think that he also, I know, he also knows, you know, as he said on the floor of the House on January 13th, Trump was responsible for the attack on the Capitol and that he should have immediately taken action to stop it. And, and I think that, that it's important for us all to look at January 6th as, you know, that's the line that can never be crossed. And no matter what you thought about Donald Trump's policies, no matter what you thought about the politics, no matter what you thought about the tweets, all of those things, you know, during the presidency that we talked about so much. And again, the policies were good ones in large part. Uh, January 6th changes everything. And, and if we're really committed to our oath, if we're really committed to the Republic and the Constitution, then we have to be willing to say we're not going to allow someone who provoked an attack on the Capitol to try to steal the election to, to continue to be heralded as a leader of our party. I guess I'm a little confused why this is happening now. So you voted to impeach the president. There was a vote to remove you then. And you overwhelmingly, your caucus voted to keep you in power. Kevin McCarthy said that the president was responsible. He said this week that Joe Biden won the election and that nobody believes that Trump won the election in the GOP caucus. What is this argument about? You know, I think we've seen several things happen um, in the last couple of months. I think one is really concerning um, move in the conference back towards the former president. And whereas you saw in the immediate aftermath of the 6th and the 13th, you know, people saying basically, OK, enough, you know, Lindsey Graham, for example, enough. This is it. In the days and weeks since then, you've seen a move back towards him. Um, the other thing that has happened is, you know, there uh, are a number of big issues and challenges we have to confront about January 6th, including whether we establish a commission. And, uh, you know, part of this most most recent sort of public battle uh, was really set off when I said publicly that the commission has to be focused only on the 6th, subpoena power, former officials, so there's no political pressure. And that is not what Kevin McCarthy's position has been about it. Uh, and I think that, you know, the the effort by him and others to say the commission has to include a look at BLM and Antifa violence uh, is wrong. I don't think we, there's, there's no justification for diluting the focus of the commission. And again, the BLM and Antifa violence was a criminal and, you know, that ought to be prosecuted. People should be accountable, but but we need a commission that looks at how did we get to a place where a president launched an attack on the Capitol, who was responsible, who was involved, how did it come about that he didn't send help when help was necessary? 
Um, the American people deserve to know that. And, and that should not be an issue of, of partisan debate. When do you think it became untenable for you to stay as conference chair? I assume that in that question, by the way, that you um, agree to some extent with your colleagues that if there hadn't been a vote this week, you would not have been an effective conference chair going into next week or something. But maybe you disagree with that. You know, I look at it more as it, it became increasingly clear that staying as conference chair would require that I embrace the lie. And but I let me wasn't just willing stop to do you that. right there. Kevin McCarthy hasn't embraced the lie. He has said that he believes Joe Biden is president. So but embracing the lie, embracing the lie includes things like saying that the former president should speak at CPAC includes things like going to Mar-a-Lago. I mean, if if you really believe what Kevin McCarthy, if, if you're really willing to stand on principle in terms of what Kevin McCarthy said on January 13th on the House floor, then there's no justification for going to Mar-a-Lago to, to rehabilitate the former president. Um, I think you saw again and again and again um Kevin, Steve, members of the leadership um, saying, you know, Donald Trump is actually one of the leaders of our party. He should be the leader of our party. And when I would say, no, he must not be, that clearly, you know, created a situation where we had different paths that we were going down. And um, being really clear, the helping people understand that the big lie is the big lie and helping voters understand how dangerous the big lie is requires more than silence. You know, silence is complicity here. And if I'd been willing to be silent, if I had been willing uh, not to say, I don't think Donald Trump has any role that he can play in our party or our government, if I'd been willing to sit in silence or to embrace claims about election fraud, um, then, you know, I think things would have been on a different, in a different path. But, but I wasn't willing to do that. There's not going to be a commission, is there? I, I'm not ready to say that. Uh, I think every day that goes by, uh, it's less likely. And, and I think there are problems on the Republican side. I think Pelosi clearly, when she put forward the proposal that, you know, said this is going to have whatever it was, nine Democrats, four Republicans. You don't do that. You don't do what she did if you want a serious commission, right? I mean, you don't propose a lopsided commission right away. It said, to Republicans, we're not taking this seriously. We want to, right. you know, we either want a, a commission that's designed to condemn Republicans or we don't want a commission because we know you're never going to agree to this. I mean, wasn't yeah. that sort of a poison pill? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it, it's it's the same kind of behavior we've seen from Pelosi consistently, which is each time she has the possibility of uh, choosing a path of bipartisanship, choosing a path where we work together, she doesn't. You know, she goes down a far more partisan path. And so clearly... And she had to know. I mean, you know, she obviously has been around. She was there when we did the 9-11 commission. So she knows what a, what a real bipartisan commission looks like. Um, and that wasn't it. And so she gives, you know, uh, people on our side who don't want a commission an excuse uh, instead of saying, look, we've got to have one and it has to be bipartisan. It's not a question. Um, I also think that there could be hesitation at the White House about it. I, you know, I, I suspect that You've seen that on some level, sort of, you know, we want to move past. We, they don't want to be consumed by talking about Trump. Um, but again, I think for the good of the country, we really need to have one. The conference just voted between Elise Stefanik and Chip Roy. Very different voting records. Elise Stefanik, a much more moderate member of the Republican conference. Chip Roy, 
quite a conservative member, much more in line with your voting record, I would say. Um, the big difference appears to have been Trump's endorsement. Given that, what does the Republican Party stand for right now, except an increasing uh, distance from any specific policy goals and an increasing closeness to uh, Trump is the Republican Party. Trump equals Republican Party, and it doesn't stand for policies the way that political parties used to back in the day, but rather um, it is simply a person. I think that that is uh, at the heart of the problem. And I think if you if you look at what we have to do as Republicans and and what I think is my obligation, and I would argue the obligation of, of you know elected Republican officials, but also you know Republican voters around the country, um, we have to get back to standing for policy. Uh, we have to get back to standing up and and being able to convey to people here's what we believe and why you ought to vote for us. Um, you know, if you go back to the fact that we didn't have a platform, for example, uh, this year uh, or 2020. Uh, you know, and and you guys have been around enough, you know, party platforms like people, you know, like I don't agree with everything in it and there are big fights about it, but it matters, you know, matters to say here, here's what we stand for. And we didn't have a platform. And um, I think that, you know, if, if you look at the extent to which, for example, in, um, you know, the, the, the hearings that are going on with people who've been arrested for January 6th, and the numbers of people who say, well, I, I was there because Donald Trump told me to be there. He, you know, he's the commander in chief. He told me. Um, you, you, you really do have a situation uh, that is dangerous and, and one where the party gets oriented around an individual. You know, I've said it's, it's a cult of personality um, and it, it, it's, it's anti-democratic. And uh, I think that what we've seen in, in the conference and what we've seen more broadly is exactly the reason why we can't be silent right now, why we have to stand up and say, no, this is what this party is and what we stand for and what we're going to fight for. And our loyalty is not not to a former president who did what uh, what he did. But the Republican Party and in, in the House has voted. They voted for a lease over chip. They voted to move you out. Uh, you just said they don't you know, they're standing for this cult of personality. Why are you still a Republican if Republicans don't stand for anything? Well, I view this as the opening battle of a much longer war. Um, I've been uh, a Republican and am a Republican. I believe in this party. I believe that the country needs this party. Uh, and, and I'm going to fight to restore the party as a party of ideas. And, uh, you know, I think that, that there are people who say, well, it's time to leave the party. Republicans who certainly have left the party. I'm going to fight to try to bring those people back. Uh, I think it's a battle that's worth having that we have to have. What would you say to somebody who, who listens to you describe that and your preference for policy over some of this other stuff and, and says, boy, she's just hopelessly naive. I mean, that's so <laughs> that's so anachronistic. Like people don't care about people don't care about policy the way that that you do. I mean, the way that that I do. They care about a fight and they care about performance and they care about, you know, getting the next hit on Fox News and praise from Sean Hannity. What do you do if that's the trend in the Republican Party? And I think it's unmistakable that that's the trend in the Republican Party. Well, look, I mean, I think um, I'm, I'm, you know, up for a fight just as much as the next person is. Uh, and, and I think that the key is we have to fight about policy. 
And uh, you're right. I mean, the incentives run now towards people that are going to be, you know, want to come to Washington and be social media stars, um, argue about Dr. Seuss. Uh, I just, I think the issues matter too much. I think that the threats are too great, whether you're talking about what's happening domestically or whether you're talking about national security set of issues, um, that that I, I I think it is incumbent upon us to have this fight and to 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 continue to do it based on substance. And I also think, you know, people are exhausted. They're really tired of sort of the way politics has been run, certainly for the last four years. And and I think that, you know, we just have an obligation to stand up and say, look, here's what the Republicans believe. We really don't think you should defund the police. And here's why that's so dangerous. We don't think you should get back in the Iranian nuclear accords. And here's why that's so dangerous. We don't think that we should have, you know, $6 trillion proposed in appropriations in the first 100 days of an administration with virtually no hearings in Congress. I mean, there are things happening that are really bad. And and if we want to stop that, we got to convince people why they should vote for us. I don't think that we're going to be convincing a lot of people to come back for us if we're spending our time on Dr. Seuss. So if, let me go. Let me come at it a, a different way on on policy. Let's say some of your critics say, actually, the problem. I have critics. A, a few. Really? A few. <laughs> I've heard. You, I mean, you get love from Nancy Pelosi and Chuck yeah, Schumer. Sounds great. like that that's doesn't really go super both helpful. ways. Yeah. Um, but some of your critics say, look, it's not really about Donald Trump. This is really about Liz Cheney being a you know. A, a Bush Cheney era Republican. You want strong national defense. You want to project our power all over the world. You care about spending and thing and, and free markets, which Donald Trump has moved the party away from. You're reluctant to to uh, to to be sort of uh, protectionist. Could this is is some of this about? policy, actually, and even though there wasn't a platform, what Donald Trump, the effect of the Trump presidency is to turn the Republican Party into a more non-interventionist party, less free market party, um, skeptical of trade party. I mean, these things have happened. Uh, Yeah, they have happened. And I think that that they're so important that we have to have the debate, you know. So um, uh, if the issue is what role should America play in the world? And what role is necessary for America to be able to defend our freedom? It doesn't really matter to me if somebody says to me, oh, that's old fashioned. It's right. And, and if you want to have the debate, we'll have the debate. And you explain to me why, you know, why you think it's right for Joe Biden to be going down the path in Afghanistan now that Barack Obama went down in, in Iraq. And we know what that led to. Um, so I think it's important for us to be willing to say, let's have the fight. Let's have the debate. Um, I think what we saw in the Trump era was, you know, too often just sort of the attacks, uh, the vitriol, um, that again, you know, people are just sick of that. And uh, I think that we have to be able to say, this is what I believe, this is what you believe, let's fight it out. Um, And we also, as Republicans, we have to be confident enough in our views that we're actually willing to have that debate. so I, I think uh, there are sub- clearly substantive disagreements, certainly with the Democrats, certainly you know within our conference, there's no question. But um, at the end of the day, this this you know set of issues and what's transpired since the sixth, uh, I would say is is you know about the lie uh, and about what the requirements are being in leadership, whether you're willing to to you know perpetuate that, and I'm not willing to do that. 
Do you think Donald Trump will run again for president in 2024? Uh, it certainly seems that way. Uh, it certainly seems that he is, uh, you know, hinting at that, gearing up to do it. Um, so, you know, if I had to guess today, I'd say yes. Are you hinting at it and gearing up to do it as well? My the, uh, my view of this is whatever it takes to make sure that he's nowhere near the Oval Office again is what's required. And, uh, you know, I think um, he's he's really dangerous. And, and his determination, his lack of, of faithfulness to the Constitution um, is something we've never seen before. If your goal is to prevent him from getting to the Oval Office, uh, and presumably you would lose the Republican nomination based on polling of how many Republicans support Donald Trump right now, the most effective way to prevent him from getting to the Oval Office is running as a third party. Would you do that? Look, I am I am not leaving the Republican Party. Uh, I believe that uh, 2024 is a long time away. I think that we have to win this battle sooner than that. I think we've got to be in a position where, um, you know, we make it clear that this is a party based on truth. And uh, that's what I'm focused on doing. Mitch McConnell, um, back when you came up for a no confidence vote uh, a couple months ago, stood up and, and spoke out rather forcefully on your behalf and said you're an important member of Congress. He looks forward to keep working with you, said your reelection in Wyoming was important. Um, he hasn't said those things this time. He was pressed by Brett Baer on Fox News the other night and said, I stand by what I said before. Didn't stand up. Um, is, is, is he trying to just hope that this all fades away? What's your sense of why he hasn't sort of joined the fight? Yeah, look, I think Mitch and I, and I have tremendous respect for him and, and for his, uh, his leadership over in the Senate, but we have, we have a different perspective on this moment. And um, I think that, you know, his view is uh, if, if we ignore the former president, then the threat will go away. Um, and that isn't my view. Uh, so I think we have a difference of opinion there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think I've been pretty clear about what my view is where we are. What's it like um, just on a day-to-day -day basis with your colleagues? And these are people you've worked alongside for years. It depends which ones. Um, <laughs> let's say the ones who have been critical. I mean, <laughs> you know, some of these, some of these folks you, you, you've worked with, you've gotten to know pretty well. Um, some of them have been skeptical of what you're doing. Some of them have been hostile to what you're doing. You got this, reports are you got a sort of mocking standing ovation when you um, left conference the other day. I mean, how are you gonna handle these relationships with your colleagues? Look, I mean, I, uh, I love the house. I still love the house. I think that it is, uh, it's a place where you really can have the kinds of debates about policy you need to have. Um, you know, my view, uh, is that we, we still need to have those. Um, there are certainly some of my colleagues that I have respect for and some I don't. Uh, when, when I opened the conference a couple of days ago, uh, you know, I said I, I have uh, affection and admiration for, I can't remember if I said many or most of you in this room, but, but it, you know, it's true, I do. Can you give us a list of names of the people you don't? <laughs> I think you can probably guess. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, you know, I um, I think that the the house itself uh, and the Capitol building. I mean, I, I th those places are really I, I think they're sacred places, and I think that the people who are elected to serve there 
have a responsibility to, to treat our jobs and to treat the House of Representatives as a place that really is the heart of, of, of our republic. And we have to, to treat it with dignity and respect. You know, certainly we fall short of that. Both sides of the aisle fall short of that. Um, but, but, you know, I don't think that that can ever be sort of old fashioned. I think it's really important. Have you had much um, outreach from colleagues who have said, sort of whispered to you, hey, keep going, I'm, I'm with you? I have, and I've also had a lot of outreach from colleagues saying, hey, we voted with you on that voice vote. So. <laughs> <laughs> but there was Everybody an account. Did. There was an account, yeah. But that, does it, so does that, uh, does that tell us anything? I mean, you know, we've talked a lot on our podcast here about how, how it was the case that so many of these Republicans were, you know, skeptical of Trump or critical of Trump, but just unwilling to say it in public. Do you think now that you're sort of, you're planting a flag, you're saying like, no, I'm saying this in public. Does that move any of those people who are whispering to you that they really are for you, but not doing it publicly? You know, I, um, I hope it does. I think there's something else going on though, too, which is real, which is people are afraid for their security. And that's a real thing. And that is, that, that ought to just give everybody pause. Like if we're now at a place and, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard from members, I've heard from them, where people feel like they can't cast a vote that they should because they have to fear for their lives. That, that's not an America that we've been in before. And, and I think that also really ought to give people, you know, people need to pause and think about what that means and, and where we are as a country. You gave Donald Trump another notch in his belt. You lost. He won this vote. Did you pick your moment wrong? I don't view it that way. I don't think you'll be surprised to hear. Um, I think that that actually if I had been willing to go along with the lie, that would have been the victory for him um, because you would have then had no nobody standing up saying stop. Nobody standing up saying what this man's doing is a fundamental threat to the republic. And I think part of the the you know pretty aggressive response from him to me in the last week or so is because he knows that. Um, it's a lot easier for him if you don't have anybody in the Republican leadership uh, who's objecting to what he's doing, if we all were just sort of saying, okay, we'll go along, great, we're going to fundraise off of it, great, you know, you sure, you might be the nominee again. Um, I, I think that's a lot easier path for him. You said that Kevin McCarthy was leading without principle. Who are the Republicans right now that our listeners should be looking to who you believe um, are potential leaders with principle? Look, I think you've got... Um, people all over the country. You've got people in governor's uh, mansions. You've got people in the Senate and in the House. And, and I would names. say people like Ben Sass. I think he's been uh, very committed throughout this. Uh, people like Senator Cassidy, certainly Senator Romney. Uh, in the House, obviously, the 10 of us, the other nine who uh, took the principled vote to impeach. I think if you look at the 60 or so House members who voted on the Republican side to certify the election, I think people, those, those are people that I think really deserve, uh, you know, deserve a lot of respect and support. You know, the whole the whole momentum as we were getting to January 6th was one of, come on, just vote to object because it'll be a lot easier. It's what Trump wants us to do. It's what the base wants. And it was unconstitutional. And so I think that the, the, the 60 or so Republicans who stood against that uh, all deserve uh, a lot of support and respect and admiration for doing what's right. 
I have one last question for you. Um, you have five children. <laughs> uh, Amy Coney Barrett also uh, has quite a few children. When uh, I and some of my fellow working moms look at you guys, this is sort of a watershed moment in leadership in Washington. Uh, not just moms, like uber moms, <laughs> uber powerful jobs with uber big families. I like that, uber moms. <laughs> uh, I'm wondering what advice you have as a, a woman and an uber mom to the rest of us. I have to tell you, one of the my most favorite and actually most moving um, images of the last you know year or so was the video of Amy Coney Barrett walking out of her house with all of her kids, um, getting into a minivan. But you knew she was getting into a minivan to come be a justice of the Supreme Court. I mean, it was it's really an amazing thing. And, um, you know, I think that uh, as moms, you know, also some of the most moving moments for me over the course of the last couple of months have been with, with, with our kids. And... Um, I had the chance last week to be with my three daughters for an early Mother's Day uh, in Wyoming. And having the chance to, to talk to your kids about things like truth and uh, freedom and the Constitution, uh, I think it's, it's always important. And I had this experience as a child when you see your parents involved in things that are sort of beyond yourself and, and themselves and, um, you know, fighting for something that matters. Uh, and, and I also, you know, cause as a mom, obviously you have constant mom guilt about, am I there enough? What am I doing? Um, but having grown up in a family where both my parents, you know, were working at, be, you know, outside of what was happening at our house, you know, I, I also have the ability to sort of look back and think, my gosh, that was such a blessing, uh, and such a blessing to be able to, to understand the wider world and, and to see people who were involved in those things. Um, and, and I think I made it out okay. Some people might have say no, <laughs> she has <laughs> issues, but <laughs> I think I was okay. Um, so I, um, I, I just encourage moms. I, I, think it, I think it makes me a better mom. Um, and I think also like you have to have a high tolerance for chaos. <laughs> All right. Well, the brisket turned 11 months this week, and I've tried to tell him the truth about not sticking his head in the toilet bowl, but um, he has rejected the truth. He's embraced the big lie that heads go in the toilet bowl. Well, he's a boy. Yeah. So. Oh, he is such a Wait boy. a second. Sorry. Wait a second. Uh, you know, Steve, maybe when everything uh, calms down just a little, you'll let me do like a full just mom podcast with Congresswoman I'd Cheney love to do that. Because I feel like I, I have an infinite number of, of mom questions that I just have that I need her advice on. I mean, I, I think that'd be good. I think we'd I'm get a lot, of, a lot of people to listen. Um, <laughs> final question for me. What's next? Um, I'm going to obviously focus on re-election uh, in Wyoming uh, and also um, spend time working around the country, raising money for candidates who believe uh, in the Constitution, uh, candidates who know the party's got to be a party of substance, um, and and doing everything, you know, that I can to help guide the party back to uh, where we need to be. And, well, actually, the real last question for me, <laughs> um, what's it like? I mean, you've become sort of a, a media darling i mean the mainstream media is treating you very well in the long history of, of the cheney, cheney family, family. <laughs> you're gonna say seeking that seeking <laughs> good press um yeah. is you know you certainly have critics who say well she just wants to 
she just wants this platform to be treated well by the media. Um, I mean, listen, I've been around long enough. I know uh, anything good that anybody says about you is probably going to be countered tomorrow with something bad. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if it had been about getting good press, there are a lot of things I clearly could have done a lot sooner. Um, but, but look, I, I think the, the press itself isn't the issue as much as it is the, the, the messages that come in. I mean, I think I, I've talked about messages I've been getting from a gold star father. Um, and, and the, the, the desperation that people have felt and, you know, Republicans and others about, you know, people watching, thinking, are we really going to have a situation where everybody who's an elected Republican just says, fine, let's let the country go down that path. And I, you know, I don't know at each moment of this, my decision about what to do because it's so big is just been, what is the right thing to do? And, you know, you, I don't, I don't know. Ultimately, uh, I feel very confident that that the right's going to prevail, um, and you know I think you just have to keep doing the next right thing here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. We'll be following you. And thanks for the mom <laughs> questions. That was great. quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 